Good morning, Maple Grove. Welcome to church. Hey, just one round of applause for the great decision that Brian made. Welcome to the family. Amen. Good stuff. Good stuff. Hey, hey, last week, Father's Day 2023, we jumped out of our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Matthew, and we, we looked at a dad named Noah who taught us how a dad can save his family. And I thought I'd do some real quick review to make me feel good about how well you pay attention every week, all right? So we have some fill-in-the-blanks. Dads who save their families make themselves... (laughs) Woo! I'm sorry, I I was just really excited. Uh, uh, Understand the... Understand the dangers, right? The dangers of raising our children in an ungodly falling world, the dangers of their life without Jesus. Um, Fathers who save their families dare to be different than the world. I mean, they look like, act like, speak like, live like, care like, different than the world, and their kids actually see that. Uh, a dads who save their families, what? Walk with God. Uh, PBJ, peanut butter and jelly, right? That's how we grow closer to God. The P is we need people that are running after God. Uh, we need the Bible, and Jesus is a jelly, right? That's how you walk with God. And dads who save their families never what? Never give up. Yeah, sometimes we fall. Many times we fail, but like Emmett Smith, right, Mike? He's going to get back up, right? Even though there's a 350-pine linebacker staring at us. Man, you guys crushed review. Good job. And now I want us to read our text for this morning that we're going to unpack. Before I do, I want to ask you a question. Do you believe that God has a truth that he wants to speak into your life this morning, June 25th, 2023? Like, do you think that there just might be something that God wants to say to you today that you really need to hear? And do you think that if you have an open mind and an open heart, that you will hear what he wants to say to you in our time together? If you answer yes, then I want to encourage you to lean into God's living and active word this morning. Okay, here's our text. And keep in mind that this text is probably going down during or shortly after Jesus was at Matthew's house sharing a meal with tax collectors and sinners. You know the meal when Pharisees came up and they tried to put doubt into the minds of Jesus' disciples about Jesus? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Come on, why are you following this guy? No Jew, let alone a rabbi, claiming to be from God would do such a thing. On hearing this, Matthew 9, 12, and 13, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor. Someone say, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners, and Luke adds in this account, call sinners to repentance. I understand like many today, but for different reasons, they misunderstood why Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors. Here's a, here's a quote we shared a few weeks ago. Jesus did not eat with sinners and tax collectors because he wanted to appear inclusive, tolerant, and accepting. He ate with them because he loved them and was calling them to repentance into a changed and transformed life. 
Jesus said sick people need a doctor. Uh, understand, a, a doctor who does not want to be around sick people is not a good doctor. Uh, a doctor who, who has the cure and treatment to someone's serious illness but does not treat that patient is not a good doctor. And a doctor who tells sick people that they are not sick is not a good doctor. Understand, Maple Grove, a, a good doctor loves sick people. A good doctor good doctor would never hold back the cure and treatment for sick people. A good doctor tells sick people that they are sick and has only one foundation for the diagnosis and treatment of all diseases and sicknesses, the living and active Word of God. Listen, our world and our churches desperately need you, me, us to be good doctors. Amen? Amen? Come on now. Here's our text. Matthew 9, 14 through 17. Disciples came to him and asked, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Nearly people pour new wine in their wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskin will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Heavenly Father, we humbly come into your presence this morning. Again, we rejoice with you and the angels in heaven over the decision that Brian made. And rejoice with you in the fact that your grace is scandalous and you loved us, you died in our place. And God, I pray this morning as we dive into your word that each of us, myself included, will hear you speak. And I pray that in no way will me, this sinful guy, get in the way of what you have for your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we've been studying the Gospel of Matthew for quite a while. I won't even tell you how long. And one of the things we've seen is that Matthew is a very purposeful teacher who has a single passion driving him as his pen moves across the paper. And that single passion is that Matthew wants his readers, including us, to know who Jesus really is. Therefore, he's very strategic in how he puts his gospel together. And so he begins his gospel with Jesus' genealogy. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Yeah, Jesus is the promised messianic king whose throne will endure forever and whose kingdom will never end. The son of Abraham, he's the promised descendant of Abraham. Through all nations of the world will be blessed. His offsprings will outnumber the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. Matthew 1 verse 1. Then after the genealogy, Matthew writes about Jesus' birth, telling us how an angel came to Joseph and told him, hey, the child that Mary is carrying is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Uh, you're to name him Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. And he'll be called Emmanuel, which means God is, God is with us. And then he writes of the visit of the wise men who came bearing gifts, seeking the one who's born king of the Jews. And then he wrote of his baptism and his 40 days and nights being in the wilderness tempted. Who is Jesus? Matthew, as he begins his gospel, says, who is Jesus? Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. 
He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham, who is Jesus. He's the one conceived by the Holy Spirit, who is Jesus. He's the one who came to save his people from their sins, who is Jesus. He's Emmanuel. God is with us. He's the one born of the king of the Jews, who is Jesus, the son of God, whom the Father loves and is well pleased, who is Jesus, the one who overcomes the evil one and who is tempted in every way as we are, yet does not sin. Listen, his first four chapters, Matthew said, hey, listen up. This is who Jesus is. And then in Matthew 4, verse 23, Matthew gives us the following summary about Jesus' ministry. Matthew 4, 23. Jesus, someone say Jesus. Jesus. You know, there really is something about that name, about that name isn't it? Jesus. Jesus. Went through Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Understand, Matthew, the single, passion, purposeful teacher, is very intentional how he, guided by the Holy Spirit, puts pen to paper in his gospel. This is who Jesus is, and then this is what Jesus did. He taught about the kingdom, and he healed every sickness and disease among the people. Matthew chapters 1 through 4, this is who Jesus is. And Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and this is what Jesus taught. And in those three chapters, Matthew 5 through 7, Matthew records for us the most detailed account of Jesus' teaching in all of Scripture, and all the world for that matter. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, his kingdom manifesto about what it means to live in his kingdom. You have heard it said, you've been taught, but I say to you, this is what is true. And then in chapters 8 and 9, Matthew shares 10 powerful miracles that back up and validate the claims Jesus was making about himself, demonstrating that Jesus has authority in all things, that he has authority over sickness and disease, Matthew 8, 1 through 17, that he has authority over what's required of us if we want to live in his kingdom, telling us that the way in is always all in, Matthew 8, 18 through 22. He has authority over nature as he commanded the waves and the winds to be still. Matthew 8, 23 through 27. He has authority over the supernatural, over demons. He has authority over the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms as he casts out a legion of demons with just a word. Matthew 8, 28 through 34. He has authority over sin as he forgives the sins of a paralytic in Matthew 9, 1 through 13. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he told the paralytic, get up, pick up your mat, and go home. This is who Jesus is, Matthew says. And this is what Jesus taught, and this is what Jesus did. And you know what? Even after all that, pretty much everyone at the time was still struggling with who Jesus is. In fact, Matthew records four questions, and I think very intentionally, in chapters 8 and 9 that underscore the very thing. Four questions asked by different people about Jesus. In Matthew 8, 27, the disciples asked, who is this man that even the winds and waves obey him? In Matthew 9, verse 3, the scribes asked Jesus, who is this man that is blaspheming? Who but God can forgive sins alone? And in Matthew 9, verse 11, the Pharisees asked this question. Why does your teacher eat with sinners? 
And in Matthew 9, 13, John the Baptist's disciples ask, why do we and the Pharisees fast and your disciples do not fast? Listen, I'm convinced that Matthew records these four answers from four different groups of people, his disciples, the scribes, the Pharisees, the disciples of John the Baptist, because he wants us to know at this point, no one really knows who Jesus is, except for maybe the sinners and tax collectors who are reclining at the table with him having a meal. Get it? Good. Now I'm calling today's conversations, why do we do what we do? And here's how I want to attack our text, by answering five questions. Why did the Pharisees fast? Why did John the Baptist's disciples fast? Why didn't Jesus fast? Why did Jesus do what he did? And then finally, why do we do what we do? Before we dive any deeper into our text, I want to do a few things. First, a little more setting the stage. Understand, at the time, the Pharisees are really not liking Jesus all that much for a lot of reasons. Number one, he's becoming more popular than they are. More crowds are going to him. They're beginning to lose their power influence over the people. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus really called them out, saying, hey, I know the Pharisees taught you these things, but here's what's true. He called them out saying, you know what? Don't fast like the Pharisees. Don't give like the Pharisees. Don't pray like the Pharisees because they're hypocrites. And then he said, at the top of the off, he says, and you know what? The Pharisees' righteousness is not enough to get them into heaven. And then when they challenged Jesus and said, hey, why are you eating with sinners? He basically told these PhD scholars, go back to school and learn. He basically said, hey, go back to the synagogue, find the scroll of Hosea and read it and find out what God really said about mercy and about sacrifice. Yeah, these guys are definitely not signing up to be a member of Jesus' fan club. And neither are some of these disciples of John the Baptist. Unexpectedly, they're siding with the Pharisees here, who John the Baptist called a brood of vipers. They're siding with them rather than the one that John called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why? I don't know. Maybe they're jealous that Jesus' movement is more popular Maybe they're offended and confused. Jesus seems to be more liberal in his behavior and his religious practice than they were. Like, like Jesus seems to be shooting at all the things that they did that they thought make them more right with God than other people. Or maybe they're upset because they thought, you know what? Our rabbi John the Baptist is in prison. And Jesus, you're not doing a thing about it. And I say all this to underscore the fact that there are a lot of underneath surface dynamics going on in this encounter we read about in Matthew 9, 14 through 17, about fasting, clothes, patches, and wineskins. Get it? Good. Now take a deep breath. It's a lot of stuff. And this is where I give you guys a take two, so you're ready for round two, all right? So, hey, hey let's do this. And I do want to say that I appreciate you guys. Um, you know, we come here on Sundays and, you know, we dive down deep, right? I mean, we dive deep. And this study in Matthew has really forced me to dive deep because verse by verse, we haven't skipped anything. You know, uh, this is our 54th week in the study of Matthew, right? And we're in chapter 9. 
I thought it would take a year. I don't know. I may never get done until Jesus comes back, you know, and my wife is very pleased with that. Uh, but it, it's been a great study, and, and so I, pr- I appreciate uh, your attention, and be sure to wake the person up next to you if they start to sleep or start playing with their phone. Um, question number one, uh, why did the Pharisees fast? Um, then, you know, after watching Jesus feast with sinners, John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? In other words, why don't you do what we do? Why don't you practice your faith the way we practice our faith? Now, we talked in depth about fasting when Jesus brought it up in the Sermon on the Mount. If fasting is basically, it's giving up food temporarily for a certain period of time for a specific spiritual purpose. If you remember, when Jesus brought it up in the Sermon on the Mount, it was calling the Pharisees out for being hypocrites and fasting so that they could be seen by other people. In fact, Jesus said that they would disfigure their faces and they would, they would get out their phones and take selfies and post those selfies on Instagram and Facebook so that people would look at that and say, wow, look at them fasting. They are such spiritual people. Question. Have you ever made a Facebook or Instagram post to be seen? In hopes that people would see it and think, or better yet, comment, wow, what an incredible spiritual person you're going to go on that mission trip, serving in that ministry. Have you ever done that? Wow, okay, just me in a room full of liars. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't want to think I'm the only messed up person. That's kind of my motto, right? But sometimes we do that, or at least I do that, right? Okay. They fast to be seen by others for approval, for admiration, as an act of religious piety. Now, they felt that fasting made them more right with God than other people were. Jesus once told a parable about that very thing. Luke 18, 9 through 12. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed very loudly, I think. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. I started the time of Jesus, Pharisees fasted twice a week, every Monday and every Thursday. And they basically taught, if you wanted to be as spiritual as they were, then you needed to adopt the same practice that most Jews at the time did. In Mark's account of this encounter, in Mark chapter 2, it actually says that, that the Pharisees and John the Baptist's disciples were fasting when they asked the question. So you see the picture Matthew's painting? John the Baptist's disciples, the Pharisees, they've been fasting all day. A demonstration of how righteous they are, how much they love God, as a way to get ready for the coming of the Messiah. And they look over, and there is Jesus and his disciples. And not only are they not fasting, they are feasting on a day that every God-loving, self-respecting Jew is fasting. I mean, they're horrified. Like, how dare Jesus and his disciples not fast and practice the faith the way that we do? Again, they are fasting every Monday and Thursday 
to be seen as a badge to wear, as a rule that they made up and enforced to determine who was spiritually right with God and who was not spiritually right with God. But I'm saying, scriptures, there's only one time that God commanded fasting. Uh, the Day of Atonement. That's it, just one time. Now, yeah, other people, other times we see people fasting in scriptures, but it was always spontaneous and for a specific purpose. And not a mindless, every Monday and Thursday, religious ritual. Instead, we see them fasting to seek God's guidance and help. Esther, chapter 4, verses 15 and 17 or to draw closer to God when Elijah was bummed out and depressed because of Jezebel, 1 Kings 19, 4 through 8. Or the mourning a loss they suffered, like when David fasted after he lost his child, 2 Samuel 12, 15 through 20. Or, or fasting because of sorrow over sin, Ezra, Ezra 10, 6 through 17. In fact, whenever God's people fasted as a religious ritual, with no thought of God, with no thought of aligning their life to his will and ways, God always called them out through his prophets. Case in point. Here's one example. Isaiah 58. Shout it aloud, verse 1. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. We have fasted, they say, and you've not seen it. We've humbled ourselves and you've not noticed. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fist. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Why do the Pharisees fast? To be seen by others? To be and show that they were righteous, more righteous than other people. And they fasted as a way to prepare themselves for the coming of the Messiah. Uh, why did John's disciples fast? Now first, let's give John, disciples, John the Baptist's disciples props for asking Jesus directly. For going to the source of their concerns. Like, they had a problem with Jesus... And they went to Jesus to talk to Jesus and not to other people to talk about Jesus. Is that what you do? Uh, uh, seriously, right? When you have a concern, an issue with somebody, do you go to them and talk to them or do you go to other people and talk to other people about them? One is good and one is not good, amen? And if you're guilty of the one, repent and make it right, amen? There's no place for it. In God's kingdom. Now, I, I don't think these guys are, just, are, are fasting to be seen like the Pharisees, but I do think they see it as a way that makes them right before God and as a way to prepare themselves, because they're right before God, for the coming of the Messiah. But it become a ritual. It wasn't spontaneous. I, I really don't think they were seeking God when they are fasting, because I kind of think if they're really seeking God, God would have said, hey, yo, you know that guy over there that you're kind of upset at? <laughs> He's actually the Messiah that you're fasting and preparing yourself for. 
But that didn't happen. It was just a ritual. Hey, why aren't you doing what I'm doing so you can be as righteous as I am? I think there's a powerful lesson for each of us in this text, and we'll come back to it often, is this. When we do something, we're involved in any activity that's part of how we practice our faith, whatever the activity is, we need to ask ourselves, why are we doing it? When it comes to practicing our faith, why do we, why do you, why do I, why do we do what we do? For what reason are we doing it? Next, why didn't Jesus' disciples fast? Now, one thing I love about Jesus, whenever someone asks him a question, he's so good in his response to put the one who asked the question quickly on their heels, and he does it again here. He has a perfect response. And in verse 15, I, I, I think I pretty much know, as much as I can know, that this is directed to John the Baptist's disciples. He's going to catch the Pharisees later in 16 and verse 17. But I think here he's really talking to John's disciples. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? And notice he connected fasting with what? With mourning. And not a mindless ritual. Do people mourn at a wedding? Maybe, right? <laughs> Hopefully not, right? Hopefully not. You know? Uh, and I, I have a funny story. You can buy me dinner. I'll tell you a funny story about a wedding I attended one time. <laughs> uh, no, it's good. <laughs> now you're all curious. Forget what I said. Weddings in that culture were a week-long event, and they celebrated like crazy. Like, we celebrate all the time, right? Yeah, we're... Entertainment's everywhere, right? I'm going to go to this concert and celebrate. I'm going to go here and celebrate, right? You, you know, in that culture, you know what? You were poor. You, you, worked, you worked your farm. You didn't celebrate much. And so when a wedding came, it was time to pull at all stops and to celebrate. And the idea that someone would go to a week-long celebration where everybody is feasting and celebrating and start mourning and fasting, it's like, hey, no one would do that. Jesus, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. That word conveys the idea of a sudden violent removal. Then they will fast. Jesus is like, hey guys, I'm the bridegroom. I'm the bridegroom that God's people have been waiting for for centuries. And while I'm with my disciples, it's not time for them to mourn. Instead, it's time for them to rejoice and party like it's 1999. <laughs> and why did he answer his disciples by talking about the bridegroom? Because he, he wants John's disciples to connect the dots. To remind them of what their own rabbi has said to them. And we read about in John chapter 3, verses 27 and 30. At this time, in John chapter 3, Jesus' ministry is taking off. John's disciples are saying, wow, look at all the people going over to Jesus. And they go to John the Baptist. Hey, you know that guy you baptized? Well, everybody's following him now. And John says this. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm set ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him. He's full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater. 
I must become less. Jesus responds to the question of why his disciples aren't fasting by reminding them that John the Baptist told them that Jesus is their long-awaited bridegroom. And, and, and why did John the Baptist use this analogy of a bridegroom to describe Jesus? Because all throughout the Old Testament, you see God describing himself as the bridegroom and his people as the bride. Uh, just one verse here, uh, one of my favorite verses. Isaiah 62, verse 5, God's talking to his people. Then he says, then God will rejoice over you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, right? And that's why if ever I'm doing a wedding and the bride's walking down and I'm up here, I never look at the bride. I, I take a glance, ladies, so that don't get me wrong. I like to look at the groom and watch him. <laughs> How you doing, son? <laughs> I like to look at the groom and you watch his lip quiver as he sees the doors open and you see a tear come down and he's like so much joy seeing his bride. And, and, and what Isaiah says, hey, you know what? That's how God feels about you. I want you to know people in this room today, that is exactly how God feels about you. Amen. Why didn't disciples fast? Why didn't they do and celebrate why did they do what they did and celebrate with joy and feasting? Because the bridegroom, the one they've been waiting for, their Savior, for centuries had arrived, was not only here, but was sharing a meal with them, feasting with them. And that, my brothers and sisters, is cause for rejoicing. Amen? Sitting at a table with Jesus. There will be a time when disciples would fast, when Jesus would be violently taken away from them to endure the cross. But on that Sunday morning, their joy was overflowing. Understand, joy, not mourning and sorrow, is the mark the life of a Jesus follower. One commentator I read this week wrote, only believers who know the truth and really hears the truth and really believes the truth, excuse me, any believer, any believer who knows the truth, really hears the truth, and really believes it, cannot help but be joyful because of what's been given to us in Christ. Amen? And, and there will be times of mourning and sorrow because Jesus is not yet with us and because we still live in a world that is full of sorrow. There will be times when fasting and mourning is appropriate for us. But nevertheless, his joy and our hope marks our lives. Amen? Why did Jesus do what he did? Verses 16 and 17. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth in an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Like, no one would do that. You say, no one would do that. They know what's going to happen. You know, the old garment is already shrunk. You put the new patch that's never shrunk. You sew them together, and when you wash them, it tears apart, and both the patch and the garment are ruined. Do the people pour new wine into new wineskins? If they do, the skins will burst and the wine will run out and the wineskin will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. Again, he says, no one's going to do that because when you ferment wine, it's in this animal skin and it, you know, it can expand, right? As, as grape juice ferments, it expands, it expands that wineskin. But once a wineskin is expanded, it can't expand anymore. And if you put new wine in it, that wine is going to burst it, right? That's what he's saying. It, no one, he's just no one would do that. And so, it's easy to see the connection between 
the metaphor he uses, the bridegroom, this one's a little tougher, right? It's a little tougher. And, and, and uh, it was tougher for me, right? Because I've actually misappropriated this parable of Jesus to, to do what I wanted it to do, right? You know, when you take something out of context, right? I used to say, hey, you know what? Hey, we're, hey, we're doing something new. <laughs> you know, if you don't like something new, guess what? We need a new wine. Let's get a new wine. We can't. You know, and so I'm doing something new that you may not like, but hey, guess what? You don't want to be old wineskin, do you? You know? <laughs> hey, I'm being honest, right? I post on, I've messed up. I'm not lying to you, right? Um, and and, uh, and so I, I really dug hard and tried to figure this out. So I'm going to let you know at least what I understand it right now um, of what Jesus is teaching to the Pharisees and about, about what's going on. Now, the first parable of the patches basically teaches that you can't combine old things and new things that aren't compatible, right? The second one about the wineskin teaches that something that has fulfilled its purpose cannot be pushed back into service again. And, and, and so let me explain what I think is going on, okay? And as always, when you're, at, when you're trying to understand a tough passage of Scripture, we always have to go to the context because what? Context is... Context is king, right? Context is king. And so these two parables are in response to Jesus' question, right? He's questioned about, hey, why don't you guys fast like we're fasting? Why aren't you following the rules that we created that make someone righteous? And Jesus says, hey, I got a couple parables for you. And I think the first one, what we have here is, you know, I think the garment is representing, you know, it's God's law. And what the Pharisees saw, they saw, hey, God's law is meant to make people righteous. Never was. But they thought, hey, follow the law. It's going to make you righteous. And, and they saw that in this law, there were a lot of things not said. You know, and maybe you could accidentally sin. So they created these patches that they would put over the law. So, hey, we're going to make this law here so you don't violate God's law. And they put patch after patch after patch, Right? And by the time Jesus came along, some of the rules were actually more important than God's rules. Uh, a matter of fact, in, in, in Matthew chapter 15, uh, these guys are fussing at Jesus saying, hey, your guys don't wash their hands right. <laughs> they're, they're disobeying God because they don't wash their hands right. <clears throat> Jesus says to them, hey, why do you disobey the command of God for your, your traditions? And so what, happened, what they had done is they so covered up God's law of these patches by the time Jesus came, really all they could see was the patches. All they could see were the laws that they made up. And, and, and when Messiah came, they expected him to look like a Pharisee. And so they didn't even recognize him. Does that make sense? The law gave us picture and picture of what Jesus was like. But they missed it. They missed it. Because they're looking for a Messiah that resembled the patches. Therefore, both the law and the patches were ruined for that generation of Israel. Like the law was never intended to lead them to salvation. It was intended to lead them to Jesus. But the law never led them to Jesus. That was its purpose. And the patches never made them right with God like they thought they did. So both were ruined. Neither one worked. 
Combining the two just made a mess of everything. Now we lost the law that led us to Jesus. We got these patches that we're trying to keep that we can't keep. It just made a mess of everything. And then the next thing they tried to do is, like, you picture the, and again, I'm working through this, so it may not be, yeah, I'm still working through understanding this, but I I picture the wineskin as being God's law. and, 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 And God's law had expanded and fulfilled its purpose. And what they were trying to do is, okay, Jesus came, he fulfilled the law, it, it fulfilled his purpose, and they're like, hey, you know what? Now we want to cram some more laws back into it. And the law, hey, wait, the law fulfilled the purpose, it, it pointed us to Jesus, Jesus came and died for our sins, now we're saved by grace through faith, and they're like, no, what we want to do is we want to bring in laws, and Jesus said, like, you can't do that because that's not the purpose of it. You're going to blow the whole thing up. It's like Jesus was the wine in the old wineskin being poured out for our sake. And now that Jesus has emptied the wineskin of the old covenant, he says, we can't pour things back into it. You can't pour your rules back into it as a means for being right with God. Understand, when we try to add rule keeping to the finished work of Christ on the cross, We try to add rule keeping as a means for making us right. We ruin both the old covenant because it was never intended to do that. And we ruin the new covenant as well because it's not about what we do. Understand, we are 100% righteous in Jesus. You can't add anything to it. He did it all. However, the Pharisees liked the old system. Matter of fact, in Luke's account, he says this, and no one after drinking old wine, Matthew 5, 39, wishes for the new. He says the old is good enough. They like the old system. It kept them in power, but also one of the guys I read this week said, self-righteousness is a seductive suitor. Self-righteousness is a seductive suitor. Like, it's either, there's something about trying to make yourself right by doing things that makes you feel good about yourself. Like somehow you're adding to it. Makes us think that we're more righteous than other people. Mark Moore wrote, people still tend to feel more comfortable with the law than with grace. Even though the law damns us, it at least tells us in black and white what's expected. You can't put rules and regulations into the new covenant. The final question, why do we do what we do? Why do we give? Why do we serve? Really, The goal really today would be for you and I to go home this week and think about all the things we do to demonstrate and practice our faith and say, hey, why do we do it? Why do we come to church? Why why are we doing that? Why are you here today? Why do we read our Bible? Why do we serve? Why do we give? Why do we share our faith? are, are Are we doing it somehow? You know, it's so easy to fall into trap. Somehow thinking... You know, I had a good week this week. I read my Bible. Every, I had 
Remember my Bible every day and, you know, uh, served the church. You know, God must really be pleased with me. He was already 100% pleased with you in Christ. Right? It's so easy to fall into that trap of thinking that what we do somehow makes us more right with God. And so really just think about all the things you do and say, why do you do them? Yeah. We don't do it to earn his love. We do it. I think we do things. You know, we want to know him more. We want to love him. We want to serve him. We want to make his name famous. But we can get in routines, right? And we do these practices of our faith, and when I, you know, sometimes they become a mindless ritual. I tried to fast like every Wednesday. You know what? It was, it was just, it became a ritual. Like, why was I doing it? What was I doing it for? Well, I'm just giving up food. Okay, well, then you just gave up food, you know? And so I think it's so important for us to think about what we do and why we do it. And also realize, you know, that in Christ, you know, like that guy over there, Brian, you know, God, right now God is 100% pleased with you, right? You can't do anything to add to your righteousness when you're wearing the righteousness of God in Christ, amen? There's nothing you can do. Now you do it because you love him. Uh, you don't serve him to earn things. You, you serve him because you love him and you're grateful to him out of gratitude. That's why we do these things. And, and again, there's not a, like I said, there's a lot of stuff I don't know about this passage. And, and I just want you to think on it. Really the biggest question, I can just say, why do we do what we do? But here's something I do know. And, and I'm going to read a passage of scripture as we get ready for our closing song. Because... and. There is a, uh, there's something coming. Like, like one day, all the uh, suffering in this world will be over. And just like they sat at the table with Jesus, check this out. Like this is true, right? Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of a loud thunder saying, Hallelujah. Because our Lord God, the Almighty, has begun to reign. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. Because the marriage, because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. For the linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, right, those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb Oh, I like this. Then he said to me, write, those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb are fortunate. Those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb are fortunate. He also said to me, these words of God are true. Listen, the way you prepare yourself for that feast is what Brian did. It's not by a bunch of works. And, and, and one day, you and I will be sitting at this feast and I, for one, think we're very fortunate to sit there. Amen? Uh, we're going to stand and do communion. Why do we do what we do? Right? Why are we doing this? Right? Well, we're doing this because what did Jesus say, right? He says, I want you to do this and what? Remember some me. And so we're going to sing a song. Uh, we have communion at the various stations. It's open to anybody who wants to take it. A little cup, you'll bring it back. And then once we're um, done singing, we'll, we'll take communion together. Um, if you guys would stand. And uh, uh, this is a song we've done uh, a lot of times. It's, it's a really good song. And there's some good lines in there about throwing away all your 
traditions and stuff like that and making room for God to really be in your life. And so I'm going to pray us in and, and let's sing this and, and make this your prayer to God this morning. And if anyone is in this room like Brian that needs to make that same decision, you know, there's no need to wait, right? Water's fine. God, we love you and we thank you for this time to be in your house. God, we thank you that in Jesus we're 100% pleasing to you. And God, I pray for anyone in this room who does not know you, God, that they realize their greatest need is you and that they'll make, need for, they'll make room for you in their lives. And God, I pray that you will help us to see that if there's anything in our life, God, where we're just going through rituals or we think that somehow it makes us more righteous than other people, I pray that we repent. Holy Spirit, just move in us as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen.